Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Hello, you found The Portal. I'm your host, Eric Weinstein, with a new experiment for this episode. The idea for this episode grows out of a familiar question. What are your top 10 book recommendations? Now, this is a question that I'm asked so frequently that I have sadly become somewhat numb to it by now. In contrast, I do not believe that I have ever been asked for my top recommendations for essays or speeches, lectures, conversations, short stories, lyrics, or interviews. And perhaps once in a blue moon, I'm still asked for my poetry recommendations, although even that seems to have trailed off in recent years. So I'd like to close out the regular programming for this, the inaugural year of the portal, by trying to entice you all into daring to think about books somewhat less in relation to all of the other marvelous forms in which rich and meaningful thinking are communicated. So let's let all the great book clubs, both online and in real life, keep doing the great job that they've been doing of talking about books. But for the portal, let's pick up essays, speeches, and the like, since they are trading at a deep and inexplicable discount given the modern attention span and the amount of top material available. Thus, I thought I would start with perhaps the most meaningful essay I have ever discovered on my own before exploring other non-book formats on future episodes. The essay I'm going to read to you is from January 9th of 1944. Now, after the war, we would learn that in just three months of Operation Reinhardt, that is September, October, November of 1942, over one and a quarter million Jews were murdered by the Nazis in the heart of Europe. This essay comes from more than one year later after this most terrible and organized of all murder sprees. Only I don't see this essay as being particularly tied to its time. Instead, it is an eternal lesson to me. For the author, Arthur Kostler, is trying to tell the reader something that is in equal terms desperate, essential, impossible, and timeless. He is desperate because he has a message to share with the world before more lives are snuffed out, and you can practically hear the sounds of the dwindling hourglass sands that goad him as he writes. And what he has to say is timeless, because in every era there is a situation such as the one he describes here. After some brief messages, I will be back with Arthur Kussler and his 1944 essay, The Nightmare That Is a Reality, from the January 9th edition of the New York Times of that year, which can sometimes be found under the title On Disbelieving Atrocities. After that, we will hear from our sponsors one last time before a discussion of the meaning of this astonishing essay. As a guy who loves great design but hates shopping, loyal sponsor Mack Weldon appeals to me because they believe in smart design and premium fabrics, but they still know how to keep shopping simple. They will be the maker of the most comfortable underwear, socks, shirts, undershirts, hoodies, and sweatpants that you will ever wear. Plus, they have a line of silver underwear and shirts that are naturally antimicrobial, which can eliminate odor. But they want you to be comfortable, so if you don't like your first pair of underwear, you can keep it and they will still fully refund you with no questions asked. Mack Weldon built its business by valuing its loyal customers, and that's why they've created the Weldon Blue Loyalty Program. Here's how it works. First, you create an account, which is totally free. At level one, you place an order for any amount, and then you'll never pay for shipping ever again. But at level two, once you've purchased $200 worth of products from Mack Weldon, not only will you continue to receive free shipping, but you will also start saving 20% on every order you make for the next year. It also grants you access to new products before they are released to anyone else, as well as free gifts added to future orders. 
So for 20% off your first order, visit MacWeldon.com and enter promo code PORTAL. That's MacWeldon, M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com and enter promo code PORTAL. MacWeldon.com, promo code PORTAL. While the folks at returning and loyal sponsor ExpressVPN know how much I appreciate them, their first line of the ad is literally, talk about a time you searched for something online you wouldn't want others knowing about. (laughs) Very tricky. Nice try. I know that most of you are probably thinking that you can just use incognito mode when you're browsing, but let me tell you something. It does not hide your activity, and it doesn't matter what mode you're using or how many times you've cleared your browsing history, because your internet service provider still sees every single website that you visited, and that's why, even when I'm at home, I go online using ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN is great as an app because they keep all of your information secure by encrypting 100% of your data and then rerouting your internet connection through their secure servers so even your ISP can't see the sites you visit. So, protect your online activity today with the VPN that is rated number one by both CNET and Wired. Visit our exclusive link at expressvpn.com portal and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com portal. So go to expressvpn.com portal to learn more. And now the reading of this episode's essay by Arthur Kustler. This essay is entitled The Nightmare That Is a Reality. It was published on January 9th in 1944 in the New York Times by Arthur Kussler. There is a dream which keeps coming back to me at almost regular intervals. It is dark and I am being murdered in some kind of thicket or brushwood. There is a busy road at no more than 10 yards distance and I scream for help but nobody hears me. The crowd walks past laughing and chatting. I know that a great many people share with individual variations the same type of dream. I have quarreled about it with analysts, and I believe it to be an archetype in the Jungian sense, an expression of the individual's ultimate loneliness when faced with death and cosmic violence, and his inability to communicate the unique horror of his experience. I further believe that it is the root of the ineffectiveness of our atrocity propaganda, for after all, you are the crowd who walk past, laughing on the road. And there are a few of us, escaped victims or eyewitnesses of the things which happen in the thicket, and who, haunted by our memories, go on screaming on the wireless, yelling at you in newspapers and in public meetings, theaters, and cinemas. Now and then we succeed in reaching your ear for a minute. I know it each time it happens by a certain dumb wonder on your faces, a faint glassy stare entering your eye, and I tell myself, now you have them, hold them, bold them, so that they will remain awake, but it only lasts a minute. You shake yourself like puppies who have got their fur wet. Then the transparent screen descends again and you walk on, protected by the dream barrier which stifles all sound. We the Screamers have been at it now for about ten years. We started on the night when the epileptic van der Lubbe set fire to the German parliament. We said that if you don't quench those flames at once, they will spread all over the world. You thought we were maniacs. At present, we have the mania of trying to tell you about the killing by hot steam, by mass electrocution and live burial of the total Jewish population of Europe. So far, three million have died. It is the greatest mass killing in recorded history, and it goes on daily, hourly, as regularly as the ticking of your watch. I have photographs before me on the desk while I am writing this, and that accounts for my emotion and bitterness. People died to smuggle them out of Poland. They thought it was worthwhile. The facts have been published in pamphlets, white books, newspapers, and magazines, and whatnot. But the other day I met one of the best-known American journalists over here, And he told me that in the course of some recent public opinion survey, nine out of 10 average American citizens, when asked whether they believe that the Nazis commit atrocities, answered that it was all propaganda and lies, and that they didn't believe a word of it. 
As to this country, I have been lecturing now for three years to the troops, and their attitude is the same. They don't believe in concentration camps. They don't believe in the starved children of Greece, in the shot hostages of France, in the mass graves of Poland. They have never heard of Ladis, Treblinka, or Belzec. You can convince them for an hour. Then they shake themselves. Their mental self-defense begins to work. And in a week, the shrug of incredulity has resumed like a reflex temporarily weakened by a shock. Clearly, all this is becoming a mania with me and my like. Clearly, we must suffer from some morbid obsession, whereas the others are healthy and normal. But the characteristic symptom of maniacs is that they lose contact with reality and live in a fantasy world. So perhaps it is the other way around. Perhaps it is we, the screamers, who react in a sound and healthy way to the reality which surrounds us, whereas you are the neurotics who totter about in a screened fantasy world because you lack the faculty to face the facts. Were it not so, this war would have been avoided, and those murdered within sight of your daydreaming eyes would still be alive. I said perhaps because obviously the above can only be half the truth. There have been screamers at all times, prophets, preachers, teachers, and cranks, cursing the obtuseness of their contemporaries, and the situation pattern remained very much the same. There are always the screamers screaming from the thicket, and the people who pass by on the road. They have ears, but hear not. They have eyes, but see not. So the roots of this must lie deeper than mere obtuseness. Is it perhaps the fault of the screamers? Sometimes, no doubt, but I do not believe this to be the core matter. Amos, Hosea, and Jeremiah were pretty good propagandists, and yet they failed to shake their people and to warn them. Cassandra's voice was said to have pierced walls, and yet the Trojan War took place. And at our end of the chain, in due proportion, I believe that on the whole, the MOI and the BBC are quite competent at their job. For almost three years, they had to keep this country going on nothing but defeats, and they succeeded. But at the same time, they lamentably failed to imbue the people with anything approaching a full awareness of what it was all about, of the grandeur and horror of the time into which they were born. They carried on business as usual style with the only difference that the routine of this business included killing and being killed. Matter of fact, unimaginativeness has become a kind of Anglo-Saxon racial myth. It is usually opposed to Latin hysterics and praised for its high value in an emergency. But the myth does not say what happens between emergencies, and that same quality is responsible for the failure to prevent their recurrence. Now, this limitation of awareness is not an Anglo-Saxon privilege, though they are probably the only race which claims as an asset what others regard as a deficiency. Nor is it a matter of temperament. Stoics have wider horizons than fanatics. It is a psychological fact inherent in our mental frame, which I believe has not been given sufficient attention in social psychology or political theory. We say, I believe this, or I don't believe that. I know it, or I don't know it, and regard these as black and white alternatives. Now, in reality, knowing and believing have varying degrees of intensity. I know that there was a man called Spartacus who led the Roman slaves into revolt, but my belief in his one-time existence is much paler than that of, say, Lenin. I believe in spiral nebulae, and I can see them in telescopes and express their distance in figures, but they have a lower degree of reality for me than the ink pot on my table. Distance in space and time degrades intensity of awareness, and so does magnitude. 17 is a figure which I know intimately, like a friend. 50 billions is just a sound. A dog run over by a car upsets our emotional balance and digestion. Three million Jews killed in Poland causes but a moderate uneasiness. Statistics don't bleed. It is the detail which counts. We are unable to embrace the total process with our awareness. We can only focus on little lumps of reality. 
So far, all this is a matter of degrees, of gradations, and the intensity of knowing and believing. But when we pass the realm of the finite and are faced with words like eternity in time, infinity of space, that is, when we approach the sphere of the absolute, our reaction ceases to be a matter of degrees and becomes different in quality. Faced with the absolute, understanding breaks down, and our knowing and believing become pure lip service. Death, for instance, belongs to the category of the absolute, and our belief in it is merely a lip service belief. I know that, the average statistical age being about 65, I may reasonably expect to live no more than another 27 years. But if I knew for certain that I should die on November 30th, 1970 at 5 a.m., I would be poisoned by this knowledge. Count and recount the remaining days and hours and grudge myself every wasted minute. In other words, develop a neurosis. This has nothing to do with hopes to live longer than the average. If the date were fixed 10 years later, the neurosis forming process would remain the same. Thus, we all live in a state of split consciousness. There is a tragic plane and a trivial plane, which contain two mutually incompatible kinds of experienced knowledge. Their climate and language are as different as church Latin from business slang. These limitations of awareness account for the limitations of enlightenment by propaganda. People go to cinemas. They see films of Nazi tortures, of mass shootings, of underground conspiracy and self-sacrifice. They sigh, they shake their heads, some have a good cry but they do not connect it with the realities of their normal plane of existence. It is romance, it is art, it is those higher things, it is church Latin. It does not click with reality. We live in a society of the Jekyll and Hyde pattern magnified into gigantic proportions. This was, however, not always the case to the same extent. There were periods and movements in history, in Athens, in the early Renaissance, during the first years of the Russian Revolution, when at least certain representative layers of society had attained a relatively high level of mental integration. Times when people seemed to rub their eyes and come awake, when their cosmic awareness seemed to expand, when they were contemporaries in a much broader and fuller sense, when the trivial and the cosmic planes seemed on the point of fusing. And there were periods of disintegration and dissociation, but never before, not even during the spectacular decay of Roman Byzantium, was split thinking so palpably evident such a uniform mass disease. Never did human psychology reach such a height of phoniness. Our awareness seems to shrink in direct ratio as communications expand. The world is open to us as never before, and we walk about as prisoners, each in his private portable cage. And meanwhile, the watch goes on ticking. What can the screamers do but go on screaming until they get blue in the face? I know one who used to tour this country, addressing meetings at an average of 10 a week. He is a well-known London publisher, and before each meeting, he used to lock himself up in a room, close his eyes, and imagine in detail for 20 minutes that he was one of the people in Poland who were being killed. One day, he tried to feel what it was like to be suffocated by chloride gas in a death train. The other, he had to dig his grave with 200 others and then face a machine gun, which of course is rather unprecise and capricious in its aiming. Then he walked out to the platform and talked. He kept going for a full year before he collapsed with a nervous breakdown. He had a great command of his audience, and perhaps he has done some good. Perhaps he brought the two planes, divided by miles of distance, an inch closer to each other. I think one should imitate his example. Two minutes of this kind of exercise per day with closed eyes after reading the morning paper are at present more necessary to us than physical jerks and breathing the yogi way. It might even be a substitute for going to church, for as long as there are people on the road and victims in the thicket, divided by dream barriers, this will remain a phony civilization.
Just when Americans are ready to get back to work, it seems that every office has been blown apart by COVID. So to win in the new economy, you're going to need every advantage to pull your office back together to succeed. Smart companies are running on NetSuite by Oracle, the world's number one cloud business system. With returning sponsor NetSuite, you'll have visibility and control over your financials, human resources, inventory, e-commerce, and more. Everything you need all in one seamless platform. So whether you're doing a million or hundreds of millions in sales, it doesn't matter. NetSuite lets you manage every penny with precision. You'll have the agility to compete with anyone, work from anywhere, and run your whole company right from your phone. So join 20,000 companies who trust NetSuite to make it happen every day. NetSuite surveyed hundreds of business leaders and assembled a playbook of the top strategies they're using as America reopens for business, and you can get that now. So if you're ready to take action, you can receive your free guide, Seven Actions Businesses Need to Take Now, and schedule your free product tour at netsuite.com portal. That's right. If you'll go to netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash portal, you can get your free guide and schedule your free product tour right now, netsuite.com slash portal. Many of us are eager to get back into work to take a few carefully scheduled meetings, but not nearly as excited about taking shared transportation in the form of an Uber, bus, or subway. What's the solution? Well, it's the stylish Unagi Model 1 personal electric scooter. Friends, your new Unagi will be a thing of beauty, and there's no mystery why it's called the Tesla of electric scooters due to its incredible build quality. It weighs only 26 pounds and has a one-click folding mechanism, making it super easy to transport with its 15-mile range and 20 miles per hour top speed. In fact, it was named the best all-around electric scooter by CNET and just won first place for best electric scooters of 2020 by Tom's Guide. So if that whetted your appetite for adventure like it did mine, you probably are wondering where you can get yours. And you can get yours today at unagiscooters.com. That's U-N-A-G-I scooters.com. But you can use the promo code PORTAL and you'll get $150 off your own Unagi E500 while supplies last. That's unagiscooters.com using promo code PORTAL for $150 off. Okay, so having read the essay aloud, what I thought we might try to do in this inaugural uh, experimental episode is to try to explore what the essay means, why I'm choosing it. So uh, what I thought I might offer up is just an off-the-cuff discussion of the parts of the essay that I find to be most salient and important. I've been sending this essay around to friends and family and colleagues for years. I view it as perhaps the most important essay I've ever read because in part it affected me deeply and personally. There are three attributes that I look for in people having to do with three famous uh, psychology experiments. The Milgram experiment, the Ash experiment, and the Zimbardo experiment. Now, the Milgram experiment is famously uh, known for the issue of obedience, that there is supposed to be an experimenter who tells the subject that they are to administer an increasing electric shock to someone else participating in the experiment and not to question the increase in the level of shock given that the screams will be increasing. What is found is that in general when people are absolved of responsibility they're willing to mete out incredible pain and torture to others and this is in fact what Stanley Milgram was getting at when he was attempting to show that ordinary people are capable of impossible cruelty. Um, I 
highly recommend a song by Dar Williams called uh, Buzzer, uh, talking about the Milgram experiment. I think it's a beautiful song, and it's an important well, understanding of humanity that most of us uh, should probably just imbibe deeply, that we are all capable of horrendous acts when someone else absolves us. So if I'm looking for people who are Milgram negative, it means that they will not do the wrong thing even when they are incented to do it, to do the wrong thing by an absolution of responsibility. In the Ash conformity experiment, the experimenter, Dr. Ash, tried to see whether or not people would give completely wrong answers if the Confederates in the experiment, unknown to the actual subject, uh, give the same wrong answer before the subject is in fact asked for the answer in question, which I believe in the original formulation of the Ash conformity experiment was to say whether one line was longer or shorter than others, an objective fact that most people were willing to lie about when in fact other people in the room would lie earlier and say that they saw the long line as being short. The last experiment is the Zimbardo experiment of Philip Zimbardo at Stanford, but it's more commonly known as the Stanford Prison Experiment in which uh, effectively a mental headspace, that of pretending to be guards or prisoners, extended so deeply into the being of the people who were uh, asked to act out this, uh, in fact, drama, that they lost track of reality. And I've dealt with this before in an essay on kayfabe written in edge.org, where kayfabe is the system of lies that professional wrestling uses to manage the difference between Fantasy, which is called work, and reality, which is called shooting, in the, in the jargon of professional wrestling. Um, very often people lose track of what is real and what is fantasy. And uh, the Kustler essay, in fact, touches on all of these questions. Who is it among us uh, who is capable of passing the Stanford prison experiment by not getting so dragged into the drama that they lose track of reality? Who's capable of getting through the Ash experiment by not being so conformist that they're willing to lie just because everyone else is lying. This uh, touches on Timur Karan's theory of preference falsification, which was one of our earliest episodes in the series for the, this year of the portal. And who is capable of being Milgram negative? That is, people who refuse to carry out uh, unspeakable cruelty just because someone else absolves them. So let's get to the Arthur Kustler essay. And I think what I really want to do is to concentrate on the first four or so paragraphs because I think that's really the meat of what makes this article spectacular and this, this essay really different. Uh, I find that in some of the rest of his discussion, um, he doesn't really reach the same high heights. So in some sense, it's really the first portion of this essay, which I think uh, makes it absolutely worth everyone's while. So let me read and then I'll give you my impressions. So he starts off by saying, There is a dream which keeps coming back to me at almost regular intervals. It is dark, and I am being murdered in some kind of thicket or brushwood. And I want you to remember the concept of the thicket, because he's going to talk about a screen. And so there's both a metaphorical version of it and a, an imagined physical version of it. There is a busy road at no more than 10, year, 10 yards distance, and I scream for help, but nobody hears me. The crowd walks past laughing and chatting. All right, that's his setup. So he is being murdered, and there is a normal world, which is the street, and then there is the unspeakable world, which is what happens uh, that is cloaked by the thicket or brushwood. In his original telling of the tale, people do not hear him screaming. 
And he, he talks about screaming and screaming will be a conserved concept throughout the article. And then he says, um, I know that a great many people share with individual variations the same type of dream. I have quarreled about it with analysts, and I believe it to be an archetype in the Jungian sense, an expression of the individual's ultimate loneliness when faced with death, with cosmic violence, and his inability to communicate the unique horror of his experience. So I think this is extremely important to understanding the essay. He says that I know that a great many people share this, the same type of dream. So he's talking about the idea that this dream may in some sense be a universal. Yet if it is a universal, that immediately gives us our first problem. Who are these people who are walking past on the road laughing and chatting? Are they not the same people who are going home at night to dream this dream of isolation, of being completely vulnerable, and of, in fact, being at the world's mercy? Are we not, in, in fact, seeing two versions of the self, which he's going to attempt in some places to distance himself from those who do not care, who do not stop, who do not hear? But in fact, he cannot find resolution because what he is confronted with, while he can be an accurate reporter to an extent, he will also end up as the unreliable narrator because he himself doesn't understand the drama in which he is in fact figuring prominently. As we get to the second paragraph, this gets developed. I further believe that it is the root of the ineffectiveness of our atrocity propaganda. So he's hoping that we can get the word out about atrocities and he doesn't fear the word propaganda. And then he says, for after all, and now he points the finger, uh, second person, you are the crowd who walk past laughing on the road. And there are a few of us escape victims of eyewitnesses of the things which happened in the thicket and who, haunted by our memories, go on screaming on the wireless, yelling at you in newspapers and in public meetings, theaters, and cinemas. At this point, you can see that he very clearly has a different model from the universal, which is, is that there is a you, and the you are the crowd who walk past, and then there is the we, and the we are the enlightened few who are trying to grab the attention and the mind share of the crowd. So then he says, now and then we, that is those who uh, are not screened from reality, now and then we succeed in reaching your ear for a minute. I know it each time it happens by a certain dumb wonder on your faces, a faint glassy stare entering your eye. And I tell myself, now you've got them. Now hold them bold them so that they will remain awake. So clearly the idea is, is that mostly it's hard to get people to hear, but there is a moment in which people become uh, open to the idea that they are in fact not seeing something. And he sees this as a dream state, as a fantasy state. But then he says, but it, is, but it only lasts a minute. And here comes a sentence that I cannot uh, free from my consciousness. You shake yourselves like puppies who have got their fur wet. Then the transparent screen descends again and you walk on, protected by the dream barrier which stifles all sound. What he is talking about here is, in fact, the actual thing that he has previously metaphorically um, put forward as the thicket. What is this thicket? What does it mean that we are, in fact, reachable but then become unreachable after we have already been reached. So he's talking about this as a transparent screen, it is invisible in fact, and it descends so that you can walk on. So this issue of walking past, not being concerned, having to get to your day-to-day -day duties, 
is only possible because of the concept of the dream barrier. And he says, which stifles all sound. This question about whether you are in fact hearing or whether you in fact are in some sense choosing not to hear, this is something that has perplexed psychologists for quite some time. There have been studies done which show that in order to suppress certain sorts of information, in a weird sense, the individual has to have an excellent map of that which they are pretending not to know. Otherwise, it is too easy to trip over something that forces us to confront the reality. So in fact, what we're talking about is some very elevated theory of mind that Kussler does not possess, and perhaps we don't possess in our current time, which is to try to understand exactly what is this thicket, metaphorically or literally, in terms of brain science, that allow people not to actually understand, listen, or hear. He continues, and he names the, the group that he's previously called we, and he integrates it with the concept of the scream, so that it is the willingness and ability to scream that, in fact, designates the in-group that Kussler belongs to. And he says, we the screamers, and I do think that this is an excellent name for those of us who try to alert large numbers of people to dangers before people are really ready to listen. We the screamers, not particularly attractive as a group name, have been at, na have been at it now for about 10 years. We started on the night when the epileptic van der Lubbe set fire to the German parliament. We said that if you don't quench those flames at once, they will spread all over the world, and you thought we were maniacs. So this idea of being able to see the future and be trapped in one's own time, and by sharing the vision of the future, one is treated as a, as a maniac in his case, um, this is obviously sitting very poorly with him. He's clearly writing in 1944 where it should be clear that the people who were calling this early during the 30s were in fact the sane ones. And he's got a bigger and taller order that not only do we have a world at war, but he has something else to tell us. And this is going to be really the subject, which is what is the biggest thing you could possibly have in plain sight that no one could see? At present, we, we have the mania of trying to tell you about the killing by hot steam, mass electrocution, and live burial of the total Jewish population of Europe. Okay, so now he drops, he drops the big bombshell. He's talking about the Holocaust, but it's 1944, and instead of being able to call it the Holocaust or the Shoah or the genocide against the Jews of Europe, He's forced to talk about it from first principles because it's strange to say it. The world had not woken up to the idea that there was a mass killing, uh, a genocide happening inside of World War II. And so he's forced in 1944 to speak in these terms that most of us living in the present day would imagine have, would have been commonplace during the time. But consider that this is January of 1944. So far, three million have died. It is the greatest mass killing in recorded history, and it goes on daily, hourly, as regularly as the ticking of your watch. So he gets from daily to hourly, but you now you know exactly what's on his mind. He's talking about seconds, and he's talking about what it is like to know that people are being murdered second by second, and that every time that you fritter or take a cup of tea or adjust your collar or whatever it is that you're doing, People are dying at the exact same time that you were f unable to figure out how to reach other people and say, do you understand what is happening here? 
So clearly, in my mind, the ticking of the watch is about seconds, and he has a very clear idea about how many people are dying for every second wasted. I have photographs before me on the desk while I'm writing this, and that accounts for my emotion and bitterness. Now, normally when people talk about bitterness, they're talking about someone else being bitter. And in fact, on social media, it's usually an attempt at a kill shot in some kind of an argument. Wow, you sound bitter. Clearly, everyone who is bitter uh, is in some sense one down because they're not reconciled. The inability to say, hey, it's all good. No, I'm not invested, is a modern weirdness. We have to recognize that there are reasons for, for evolutionarily having a trait known as bitterness. And he's talking about the fact that he's been at it for 10 years and it is more pain and weight than this tiny number of people that he's referring to as the screamers can bear. So anyway, as he says that, as he says this, he now says, people died to smuggle them out of Poland. That is the photographs, for example. They thought it was worthwhile. Now, I want to bring attention to the fact that even in 2020, when this is being recorded, Witold Pilecki, who I do not know how to pronounce his name because I've never heard another hu human being actually talk to me about this person. He's a personal hero, along with Dick Gregory, uh, a few other people, of incredible courage, a courage that I don't have and most nobody I know has. Witold Pilecki was a Polish non-Jew who decided that he would... Um, get himself smuggled into Auschwitz, uh, attempt reconnaissance, take photographs, and figure out what was going on at Auschwitz, and then somehow, after organizing resistance, get himself out. Uh, possibly the bravest, bravest thing I've ever heard. He, I believe, dressed as a Jew, got himself uh, incarcerated and taken to Auschwitz, did the reconnaissance, organized resistance, got a report together, and smuggled it out, okay? Most of us have never heard this man's name. It, it just, I don't even understand it. There should be an entire month devoted to this guy in the Jewish calendar. Uh, he was then killed by the communists after the war. Um, but the key point is that these reports had been smuggled out of Europe and were widely ignored. And the question of why we would not want to know that our enemy was engaged in mass atrocity um, and why it was so difficult to communicate is something that we should all, I think, pay a great deal of attention to. So he says, people died to smuggle them out of Poland. They thought it was worthwhile. Now the question, of course, is what happens when Witold Pilecki, for example, gets the report out and it has very little effect? The weak link in the chain, in fact, is not presence or absence of heroes. The weak link in the chain is what do the rest of us do when we have access to information that should propel us towards action? The facts have been published in pamphlets, white books, newspapers, magazines, and whatnot. But the other day, I met one of the best-known American journalists over here, and he told me that in the course of some recent public opinion survey, 9 out of 10 average American citizens, when asked whether they believed that the Nazis committed atrocities, answered that it was all propaganda lies and that they didn't believe a word of it. Now, what does one make of this? Somehow, we cannot get people to understand and believe that the world is far different than whatever it is that they are gene generically told to believe by um, major news organs, for example. Until you have institutions willing to reify a particular reality, in this case, the actual Holocaust, 
It's very difficult to get people to go along with it because you don't have that kind of concordance between the information and what the institutions say. And this is what really struck me about this. Someone describing the Holocaust in 1944 who has to talk about himself as a crazy person in order to anticipate what the mood of the public would be in hearing this. Now, how big, some, how big does something have to be uh, before it becomes impossible for people to pretend that it's not happening? If it can be the size of the Holocaust and people can still convince themselves that this isn't worth reacting to, it gives you an idea that there may be no limit on the size of the elephant that can fit into any room. Then he says, as to this country, and I think um, he's probably talking about Britain, where he had a home, I have been lecturing now for three years to the troops, and their attitude is the same. They don't believe in concentration camps. They don't believe in the starved children of Greece, in the shot hostages of France, in the mass graves of Poland. They've never heard of Ladis, Treblinka, or Belzec. You can convince them for an hour, and then they shake themselves. Their, their mental self-defense begins to work, and in a week, the shrug of incredulity has returned like a reflex, temporarily weakened by a shock. So here you see he recapitulates the earlier metaphor of the puppy shaking themselves, having gotten the fur, the fur wet. And what he's saying is, is that you can convince them for an hour. It, the problem isn't whether or not you can reach, reach people. The problem is how do you, and using his words, how do you hold them and bold them? In effect, what we're doing is, is that we're taking the information and we're putting it in some very unstable state. And as soon as that person has a chance to compute the consequences of what holding that information may do, how it may obligate that person, they very quickly begin a second process. So what we initially imagine is the problem of teaching people, of informing people, is in fact of very little use whatsoever. The real issue has to do with what do we do to make sure that the information stays in place. This is a massive reframing. It's not that we need the information superhighway. Instead, the question is, where is the courage superhighway? Where is the superhighway uh, of emotion and reification? We don't have a reification superhighway. And I want to talk a little bit about the portal as we get to the end of this uh, first, uh, uh, last of the major early paragraphs in the essay. Uh, clearly, this is becoming a mania with me and my like, again, talking about the problem that is ostensibly his small group. But then he starts to make some moves and we start to see the real boldness of this essay. Clearly we must suffer from some morbid obsession, whereas the others are healthy and normal. All right, well, this is like, you know, uh, Queen's Gambit declined. Uh, he's gonna make a gambit where he's gonna offer something of great value, which is that clearly his group uh, must be the crazy people. But then he, he makes an incredible move, and he says this, but the characteristic symptom of maniacs is that they lose contact with reality and live in a fantasy world. So perhaps it is the other way around. Perhaps it is we, the screamers, who react in a sound and healthy way to the reality which surrounds us, whereas you are the neurotics who totter about in a screened fantasy world because you lack the faculty to face the facts. Were it not so, this war would have been avoided and those murdered within sight of your daydreaming eyes would still be alive. Now, that is so strong and so bold that he's going to have 
to pull his punch slightly in the next sentence, which I think we should ignore. He says, I said perhaps because obviously the the above can only be half the truth. Well, obviously, yes, it's only a portion of the truth. The rest of the essay, for the most part, is his attempts to explain away this crazy state of affairs. But I think that really what makes this essay so incredible is this move where he says it cleanly and plainly. He is saying that a tiny number of us are in fact sane and healthy and sound, and that the vast majority of humanity is in fact maniacal, that the neurotics, the maniacs are in fact the average Joe, the, uh, the simple Jane, uh, whoever you want to call it uh, as being the median individual is in fact in danger of being completely crazy and nuts. And this is exactly what, in a certain sense, a naive reading of the Milgram, Ash, and Zimbardo experiments would tell us. They tell us that the generic person in our society is willing to lie, is willing to do the unspeakable, is willing to disappear into a story that's been told. In fact, why is that? Well, it has to do with what I've talked about as truth, meaning, fitness, and grace. These are the four directives which I'm forced to trade off between, where I can't simply go pure truth because, for example, sometimes uh, if, let's imagine that you're uh, you're being held hostage and you're asked to answer a question and you know that the answer to your question will be life or death. What we, the reason we refer to these uh, communications from hostage takers as hostage videos is to let people know that when people are in life and death circumstances, they frequently lie. They will go back on the truth in order to be fit, to have a hope of saving themselves. And in fact, this is one of the issues that very often we cannot get people to listen to things as per uh, Upton Sinclair's famous line that it is uh, difficult uh, to get a man to understand something uh, when his salary depends on his not understanding it, something to that effect. What we have in in the situation where fitness must compete with truth is a recognition that um, understanding many things may cause us to become less fit in a Darwinian sense. And so I think that this is one of the things that uh, we have to contend with, which is that when we realize that we are up against up against insuperable odds, as we might have felt when we were facing Nazi Germany, uh, it becomes weirdly rational to lie if we are trying to preserve ourselves and we feel that we have very little agency with which to actually change the course of history. So I think that that's one of the aspects um, of why you can expect madness on behalf of a large number of people. But it's also the case that in general, um, people lack courage uh, en masse. They also... Uh, very often simply cannot find a way of behaving that is consistent. And in attempting to behave in a consistent fashion, both intellectually and morally, um, when they find out that they can't do it, they sign on for large programs with the idea being that we can all say, oh, well, I went along with what was the dominant force in my time and not have to actually take individual responsibility. So I think that in those paragraphs, we have a fantastic message from the past, which is that something of arbitrary size that should be seeable by everyone, that is well-documented, um, and to which many people have been exposed, can still be hidden. And that the way in which it's hidden does not, does not have to do with the fact that the evidence isn't present. 
It has to do with the fact that there is the secondary process, this process of shaking ourselves, of getting rid of the truth, of getting rid of our obligations to each other, of in fact going into a dream state to protect us. And I believe that in large measure that's where we are right now. One of the reasons that I started the portal is because I believe almost none of what I'm told by our leading institutions. I don't believe that the universities are level with us. I don't believe that the political parties are leveling with us. I don't believe that our news media are asking the questions or trying to get information into our hands so that we can conduct civil society. In effect, I think that almost all of our institutions are lying to us about almost everything almost all the time. And to make such a statement is to sound insane, as Kussler did in his time. But I believe that in part, one of the purposes of the portal has been to alert people to the idea that we probably live in a fantastic world that doesn't really exist and have, have done so for between 75 and, I don't know, 47, 48 years, depending upon how you want to count. As to what we should do about it, I'm not entirely sure. Um, one of my thoughts was that we should start the, um, the portal as a means of escaping from this uh, fantasy reality. But uh, I'm watching how the system seems to be destroying individuals using the fact that the few things that are free, um, that are meaningful in our world, are in general run by individuals and not large organizations, and that individuals can always be trapped up on accusations and personal foibles. So I want to uh, talk a little bit about what the institutions were failing to do in Kussler's world, and then I'll get to the end of his essay. He says, uh, and at our end of the chain, and in due proportion, I believe that on the whole, the MOI and BBC are quite competent at their job. For almost three years, they had to keep this country going on nothing but defeats, and they succeeded. In other words, he was talking about the fact that uh, it's important that one's sense-making organs, in this case, for example, the BBC in the UK, um, they have to go to war because, in fact, you're talking about a mixture of informing the public and making sure that the public is emboldened to fight whatever it is a uh, threat to its survival. In this case, what was happening on the continent. He says, um, but at the same time, they lamentably failed to imbue the people with anything approaching a full awareness of what it was all about, of the grandeur and horror of the time into which they were born. In other words... What was going on in retrospect was is that uh, the sane part of Europe was fighting the craziest part of Europe. And I don't mean to say that the U.S. and the U.K. were blameless. Certainly we know about the uh, British Empire and the many horrible things that happened under it. But in effect, the blueprints for a better tomorrow were found in the U.K. and in the U.S. And um, we were the good guys. And I don't want to get into the idea that uh, there were no good guys in World War II because if good guys means anything, we were the good guys. What we had to do was to defeat pure evil. Even though we allied ourselves with a pure evil in the form of Stalin, uh, who you know, has to be admitted, gave um, on behalf of his people uh, an incredible sacrifice in what would be called the, the Great Patriotic War over there, um, in the effort to stop Hitler. So, yes, there were a lot of complications. There were monsters everywhere. But it was necessary for people to recognize that pure evil had to be defeated in the form of Adolf Hitler and the Nazis. And that people who were fighting that war were not even at the time fully aware of the fact that they were fighting arguably one of the noblest wars that we will ever see. 
So I think it's very important that we understand Kessler's context. He then tries to talk about why was it that um, there were so many great uh, Cassandras in the past that failed to alert people, uh, prophets, preachers, teachers. He can't figure out exactly um, why it was that we've historically been um, perhaps less successful than we might have been. He talks about whether the Anglo-Saxon penchant for being cool under fire, um, which sometimes is exaggerated in wartime. I remember reading letters home from the front in World War I where the Brits talk about, oh, we've been you know, having, uh, having some fun with our counterparts on the other side, tossing pomegranates back and forth, referring to grenades. Um, and that is possible that... Um, it's not helpful to be too cool about these things. Uh, Kostler himself was a Hungarian Jew um, who made uh, the UK his home, but uh, both Hungarians and Jews are known to run a little hot. So he uh, hides behind Latin hysterics as he talks about cultural reasons for taking different attitudes, but he can't really figure out where this disconnect is coming from. Then he talks about the weird way in which some knowledge is distant and some knowledge is immediate. So he talks about whether or not he believes that Spartacus existed and led a revolt of slaves, um, or the fact that maybe the numbers are too big in the Holocaust, that an individual life is a tragedy, but that millions of lives at once can't be thought through. And then weirdly, it has less weight than even a single, a single death, which is very immediate to us because of the way in which our brains uh, keep track. He talks about the idea that the absolute uh, is a particular um, problem, an impediment. This issue of knowing and believing, where he talks about if he knows the exact date of his death, it will have a very different effect than if he knows the approximate time of his death. Interesting to note that he, he commits suicide in the 1980s uh, from uh, having incurable diseases and having spent his life, interestingly, as a man trying to ground his idealism in some movement or some institution and he finds that his idealism is always of a nature that doesn't allow him uh, to affiliate so he tries communism he tries anti-communism he tries zionism he tries any manner of different ways of living idealistically and uh, like prince charming with a glass slipper he's uh, trying it out on all of the various um, possible institutions and never finding uh, the right fit for Cinderella. Then he says, thus we all live in a state of split consciousness. And I think this is where he starts to actually reconcile um, himself to the fact that he's introduced two separate ideas. That is that there's a universal aspect of this experience of being isolated and picked off. Uh, think about counter, uh, cancel culture rather at the moment um, is a good example that are we both part of the mob and we fear the mob will turn on us. Um, so here he starts talking about being in a state where he recognizes that there is split consciousness and that perhaps this resolves the puzzle, that we all have split consciousness. Some of us are aware of it. Others of us make use of it and uh, don't admit to it. So he says, thus we all live in a state of split consciousness. There is a tragic plane and a trivial plane which contain two mutually incompatible kinds of experienced knowledge. I think it's worthwhile looking at different breakdowns of knowledge. One would be techne versus episteme. Techne is sort of the knowledge that you have embodied in you, that you feel a woodworker who works with his hands 
uh, has um, has techne, but the person who designs a building uh, inside of their mind and d- does it according to our architectural specifications might be working within uh, episteme, for example, the person who understands the acoustics of a great violin but may not have the knowledge of how to actually machine the wood in order to produce those acoustics. That would be one breakdown uh, of knowledge um, between two different kinds. Another uh, kind is the trivial and the profound, which uh, in writing is sometimes referred to when you when you juxtapose them as bathos, where you have to save the universe, but first you have to remember to floss your teeth. And I do think that there's a weird way in which the lived experience uh, movement is in a strange way an attempt to say that knowledge can't be universal because of lived experience. And that if someone's lived experience contradicts the universal, we should privilege lived experience as opposed to uh, that which appears to be far more robust and can actually be shared between people. So he says, um, we have incompatible kinds of experience knowledge. Their climate and language are as different as church Latin. Keep in mind that this was before Vatican II. uh, As different as church Latin uh, from business slang. These limitations of awareness account for the limitations of enlightenment by propaganda. People go to cinemas. They see films of Nazi tortures, of mass shootings, of underground conspiracy and self-sacrifice. They sigh. They shake their heads. Some have a good cry. But they do not connect it with the realities of their normal plane of existence. I think about this as how difficult it is for us to actually think about what it is that we're saying. Um, and feel it and embody it. And I found this in the financial crisis where the person who probably had the best handle in the financial crisis before it hit uh, was a friend of mine, um, or at least in my circles, was a friend of mine named Adil Abdulali, uh, who I wrote a paper on mortgage-backed securities with in 2001. And he told me what was going to happen uh, in the financial crisis before it happened. And he, he did it in a detailed fashion, what was going to happen first, what was going to fail next, which contracts were going to come up, etc. When it all happened, I called him up and I said, Adil, you must have made a fortune. He said, we made some money, but not nearly as much as you would hope or expect. And I said, that's impossible. You knew everything in detail before it happened. He said, yep. I said, well, what happened? And he said, I couldn't bring myself to believe it. I said, really? He says, no, there's a difference between being fully committed to it and simply thinking it's true. I found that to be an incredible statement. But then I was able to connect it to other people's comments. When Dick Gregory, uh, who along with Witold Pilecki is a great hero of mine, found out that the FBI was considering having him killed by La Cosa Nostra or uh, Italian organized crime, uh, he was shocked. He said, I always said something like, I always knew they were trying to kill me, but I didn't know they were trying to kill me. And I thought about, well, what did he mean by that? And it's this weird way we have of thinking something is true before we actually get confirmation that we are permitted to feel this truth with every fiber in our body. And so I think that this is something that Kustler is talking about, which is that many people who are not screaming are thinking, but they're not having the embodied experience. And then he says, we live in a society of the Jekyll and Hyde pattern magnified into gigantic proportions. And I think this gets to a very interesting final way of closing out our analysis of this essay because it speaks to how different is the time in which we live. If we think about an era in which we're convinced that things were incredibly real, we could hardly do better 
than go back to World War II. Yet this is somebody writing from the tail end of World War II, showing us that in fact people were participating in World War II. They were losing their lives without a sense of the grandeur of what it was they were involved in. There's always been this question, for example, did people in the Renaissance know that the Renaissance was happening? Was this some sort of environment like water where fish never notice it or air where birds and humans uh, you know, depend on it? But in fact, we don't see the medium uh, in which we live and in which our lives play out. So he says, with respect to this Jekyll and Hyde pattern, this was, however, not always the case to the same extent. There were periods and movements in history, in Athens, in the early Renaissance, during the first years of the Russian Revolution, where at least certain representative layers of society had attained a relatively high level of mental integration, times when people seemed to rub their eyes and come awake. Again, remember the issue of, sleepness, of sleepiness and wakefulness. He says, when their cosmic awareness seemed to expand, when they were contemporaries in a much broader and fuller sense, when the trivial and the cosmic plane seemed on the point of fusing. So if you think, think back to, what is it, the, the milk delivery man um, walking through the ruins of London uh, during the Battle of Britain and um, the idea that uh, we, should, we have to carry on, you know, keep calm and, and carry on, that idea that a simple small act is an act of defiance and it's a way in which the trivial and the uh, and the cosmic come together I remember when my uh, daughter cut my hair during the COVID epidemic uh, it was a an incredibly small act but also one that felt uh, laden with meaning because I had not been able to go to something as simple as a barber uh, for months um, he says, but never before, not even during the spectacular decay of Rome and Byzantium, was split thinking so palpably evident, such a uniform mass disease. Never did human psychology reach such a height of phoniness. Our awareness seems to shrink in direct ratio, and here, here it comes, as communications expand. The world is open to us as never before. And we walk about as prisoners, each in his private portable cage. Um, I don't know how you read this. Private portable cage sounds to me like the mental space that we disappear in when we're on a street but looking into a phone. When our headphones are in our ears and maybe our earbuds are playing music or we're listening to a podcast, we're not really present. We are not contemporary. Uh, with anything. It's not that we're listening to a synchronized broadcast most of the time. We are asynchronously out of time and out of space and due in large measure to communications. Now he's talking about 1944 uh, as being a period of increased communications. Our awareness seems to shrink in direct ratio as communications expand and the world is open to us as never before. Well, okay, assume that that's true. What does it say that our phones carry all of this information and can screen us away from the people who are even at our own table as we privately custom, customize our own world to be the cage that we've always desired so that we can lock ourselves in and we have a permanent thicket surrounding us that we can't be reached by any, anyone else. Um, and then I think about who in the present really constitutes... Um, 
the screamers. And I wanted to read a little bit at the very end of this essay just to remind ourselves and to mention a friend. What can the screamers do but go on screaming until they get blue in the face? I know one who used to tour this country addressing meetings at an average of 10 a week. He is a well-known London publisher. Before each meeting, he used to lock himself up in a room, close his eyes, and imagine in detail for 20 minutes that he was one of the people in Poland who were killed. One day he tried to feel what it was like to be suffocated by chloride gas in a death train. The other he had to dig his grave with 200 others and then face a machine gun, which of course is rather unprecise and capricious in its aiming. Then he walked out to the platform and talked. He kept going for a full year before he collapsed with a nervous breakdown. He had a great command of his audiences and perhaps he has done some good. Perhaps he has brought the two planes divided by miles of distance, again, the thicket, if you will, an inch closer to each other. So in other words, it's very little that has been done, but even an inch is less distance if there are miles. I think one should imitate this example. Well, I do want to say that there are some of us who have been connecting to the pain of, their, of our audiences, and one in particular who made a point of lecturing as fast as he could um, to as many people as possible. In part, he had encountered a group of people that unfortunately go under the name of incels that I think he understood better than any of us. We have dispensed with our need for young men, young men who cannot form families, young men for whom there is no um, enemy that we need to be saved from um, so that even the idea of glory and war is not available to them. They're not able to earn. They are not able to... Uh, command the respect in our society because we, in fact, are completely unclear whether there's anything we want from masculinity at all. And I think this individual recognized that there was an enormous demographic, just the way in previous election cycles the exurbs and soccer moms were discovering. Well, this incel demographic is filled with good young men who are lost. And he went around trying to talk about this problem and the fact that it was deranging our society until he couldn't go anymore and effectively collapsed in a nervous breakdown. And I think that we have to be compassionate with people who see the size of the problem. In 2020, many of you have woken up to the idea that some of us, the modern day versions of the screamers, have been yelling at you for decades. On this program, we've tried to talk about a great number of things that have no echo in the outside world. Uh, you will find that, in fact, we've talked about three or four, perhaps five things with very little impact. In the first place, in episode, I think it was 25, we talked about uh, Jeffrey Epstein and what questions needed to be asked. And in fact, uh, despite being listened to by just under half a million people uh, on, I think, YouTube alone, and over half a million people, of course, between the audio and the video, uh, it's had no effect. In episode 19 of The Portal in our inaugural, in our inaugural year, we talked about um, the laboratory mice of the Jackson Laboratory uh, potentially being broken and the fact that we've cheated ourselves of the molecular embodiment of the antagonistic pleiotropy concept um, of George Williams. 
Um, we have not heard anything from the Johns Hopkins University uh, with respect to uh, what happened in that interaction. And we would like to extend an, another invitation uh, to that laboratory to talk about the problems of uh, scientific interactions surrounding elongated telomeres, laboratory animals, and the perverse incentives of science itself. In episode 18, I believe we discussed the distributed idea suppression complex. Uh, again, we got tremendous traction from all of our listeners, an incredible base at this point. But strangely, within the institutional world, there was no interest whatsoever, except potentially just to uh, sort of deride it, even though what we're talking about is exactly the same problem that Kussler had. Additionally, we released uh, Geometric Unity in lecture form, and we have not really heard, despite the fact that I believe that the major ideas are set out in that lecture and, and the additional material that we put up, uh, almost any um, substantive response. Uh, we've talked about the problem that the National Academy of Sciences, National Science Foundation, uh, faked a labor shortage during the 1980s under uh, the leadership of Ronald Reagan, passing to Eric Bloch as head of the NSF and passing to Peter House as head of the Policy Research and Analysis Division. We've heard nothing on this front, even though we claim that uh, there was a study done in 1986 that clearly showed that um, we were going to fake a science and engineering uh, shortage that could have been cured by the market, which is what happens in a market economy. The key feature is that a lot of what we do here on the portal uh, has no echo. And to the extent it will have an echo, it will have an echo only when we screw up. So part of what I wanted to talk to you about was the thicket. What is the dream barrier? What is the screen that keeps us from connecting, from reaching our highest and best function in this world to collaborating uh, amongst ourselves? Now, I would say that the communities that have formed around the portal have been the most important and gratifying thing as we finish out this year. Uh, try to find the Discord servers. Uh, look for the portal.wiki. Um, look uh, for the website um, and sign up if you can. But most importantly, recognize that we are living in a dream state and most of what we've been taught to believe is completely untrue. We've been trying to do our best to show you another world, whether it's through preference falsification, the idea of stagnation, when many of you have been taught that everything is accelerating at a dizzying speed. Um, our hope is, is that at the end of this, that you are not those who walk along the road while people are being hurt in the thicket. We should all be taking a much closer look at what's really going on, for example, with China and its uh, Uyghur Muslim population. Uh, there are things to be done in our era, and there are ways in which this essay was written for people of all times. It happens that it's a time capsule coming out of the Holocaust and World War II to let us know that even back then, uh, monstrous things, enormous things, things that dwarf the Hindenburg, were claimed not to be seeable by large numbers of people who were staring straight at them. So if you believe that in some sense you're isolated, that the people around you, your family, your co-workers don't believe what you see, if you become convinced that the world is magnificently uh, off the rails and so far from what it claims to be that you can't get things to line up, uh, feel free to imagine that fact that you are the maniacs, but also consider whether Arthur Kussler isn't speaking to you. Maybe the idea is that the people who don't see this 
those who laughed when we called this the no-name or n-squared revolution, those that derided the idea of having anything that would stand up to cancel culture, of the idea that the problem at Evergreen State College was going to become a national problem if you only waited for those kids to graduate given the level of indoctrination. It's not too late to realize that we have a problem of universal institutional collapse. I think that's probably my craziest statement, is if you'll think about it, saying that all the institutions are led by people who cannot be trusted uh, is exactly the sort of thing Kussler was talking about. How do we talk about something that is so large that it can't be believed simply because to believe it would cause someone not to know how to live their life the very next day? I think we have to be courageous and realize that we're going to be living our lives in the Truman Show for a while until this situation breaks and we at last come to grips with the fact that many of us have known nothing other than the bubble in which we grew up. I hope you've enjoyed this essay, uh, The Nightmare That Is a Reality by Arthur Kustler from January 9th, 1944 in the New York Times. Um, it's been really meaningful to me that I can bring something up. I never thought I could discuss this with, uh, in all likelihood, over a quarter of a million people or more going forward. So thank you very much for sharing something of a great personal uh, significance. I hope it was worthwhile. You've been through the portal. We hope that you will subscribe uh, on Apple, Stitcher, wherever you listen to podcasts, Spotify, and then you'll go over to YouTube and find our channel and not only subscribe, but click the bell icon so that we'll make sure sure that we're in a position and we, we can update you whenever our next video episode drops. Until then, be well, take care of yourselves, stay healthy. Thanks. Thank you.